Good evening. More revelations about the desperate struggle to protect lawmakers on January 6th. Biden reverses New York's terrorist designation and the state tries to reverse a law meant to stop environmental racism. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, February 25th, 2021. Today, President Joe Biden reversed a number of executive orders made by his predecessor, one sought to label New York City, along with Portland, Oregon and Seattle, Washington, with an anarchist jurisdiction that would threaten funding to the cities. New York Attorney General Letitia James thanked Biden in a statement today. She says Trump's executive order was not only a petty campaign stunt, but one that endangered every New Yorker. Quote, as we continue to battle a public health crisis that has affected every corner of the nation. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi responded to yesterday's statement by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell blasting a proposal for a bipartisan commission to investigate the invasion of the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters. The Kentucky Republican said he agrees the siege on the Capitol warrants a serious and thorough review, but said he thinks Pelosi's proposals fall short of the standards set by the commission established after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Pelosi responded, the seriousness of the assault warrants the commission. Our focus is on finding out the truth, and I'm disappointed in what I heard the minority leader yesterday, McConnell, say on the floor of the Senate. It was really quite stunning because in my brief conversation with him on this subject, I had the impression that he wanted to have a... January 6th, similar to 9-11 commission. But what he said on the floor was really a departure from that. It was really disappointing. He said, we could do something narrow that looks at the Capitol, or we could do potentially do something broader to analyze the full scope of political violence problem in this country. No, we have a domestic terrorism challenge in this country. That's what the director of the FBI testified to the end of September. Domestic violence taking more lives than international violence in this country and the biggest number since Oklahoma City. White supremacy, anti-Semitism, and another list of xenophobia, Islamophobia, etc., and as Speaker Nancy Pelosi, not only are the two sides divided on who caused the attack, they're also split on what to investigate. Democrats reportedly want to include domestic violent extremism beyond the January 6th attack. Republicans say if that happens, they'll want to investigate left-wing violent groups, whoever they are. And United States Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman told lawmakers today a number of officers are being investigated and half a dozen suspended for their actions during the invasion of the Capitol. So right now we have 35 officers that are under investigation and we do have six uh, police officers that have been suspended with their police powers being revoked. The investigations are concluded based on typically a 60 to 90 days. And Pittman added the ferocity of the invaders would have required armed soldiers to stop. The department was not ignorant of intelligence indicating an attack of the size and scale we encountered on the 6th. There was no such intelligence. Although we knew the likelihood for violence by extremists, no credible threat indicated that tens of thousands would attack the U.S. Capitol. 
nor did the intelligence received from the FBI or any other law enforcement partner indicate such a threat. Indeed, the Secret Service brought the Vice President to the Capitol that day as they were also unaware of any credible threat of that magnitude. There is evidence that some of those who stormed the Capitol were organized. But there's also evidence that a large number were everyday Americans who took on a mob mentality because they were angry and desperate. It is the conduct of this latter group that the department was not prepared for. To stop a mob of tens of thousands requires more than a police force. It requires physical infrastructure or a regiment of soldiers. As to the USCP officers that proudly served the congressional community, they fought bravely on January 6th. They are heroes. And that's United States Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman. The co-author of today's ProPublica story, I Don't Trust the People Over Me, Riot Cops Open Up About Disastrous Response to Capitol Insurrection, is Joaquin Sapien. He agrees the Capitol Police were unprepared for what they had to face. We managed to speak to a number of officers who were part of what's called a civil disturbance unit, which means they were really on the front lines to defend against what had clearly become a riot. And these are officers with specialized training and, and gear that can help them in an event like this. And the, what those officers described to us was chaos. Uh, they said that they were struck with rebar that was flung at them from the scaffolding overhead that was part of the inaugural stage for, for President Joe Biden. They said that they had been hit with frozen cans of food. Uh, they said that they had been attacked with baseball bats, with uh, American flagpoles, and, uh, and that the bear spray was just relentless. All day long they were being sprayed with this kind of bright orange chemical bear spray that is really noxious and makes it difficult to see and breathe. And so for them, even for a combat veteran who is right in the middle of it that we spoke to, uh, the, the feeling was that that the force was not prepared for anything of this kind and that it was an extremely dangerous situation. And uh, some many of these officers that we spoke to feared for their lives. In some cases, the officers fought back and seriously injured. You mentioned one uh, protester was shot in the face with a pepper ball. His skin was hanging off. You could see his jaw exposed and his teeth exposed. And yet he kept on fighting. It was vicious. It was a really uh, intense battle that these officers had, had described to us, particularly on the West Front, where where the most serious assault took place. There were certainly protesters who were injured, too. You mentioned the, the person who was shot in the face with a pepper ball. One of the things that we heard again and again from many of these officers is that nothing seemed to stop these protesters, that they just you know, kept coming in overwhelming numbers, would stop at nothing to try to achieve their goal. Yeah, today, uh, Chief Pittman said they would have needed a regiment of soldiers, which implies that they would have had to have killed numerous people to stop this. What hindsight makes clear is that they certainly needed a lot more officers. They needed more of a barrier. All they were really using on that day were 
are what are known as bike racks. They're these kind of steel framed vertical bars, barred gates that they put up, and they could have benefited from something much stronger than that. There were apparently, according to the head of the Capitol Police, who's since resigned, he did try to get the National Guard to be present sooner, although there are now a lot of contradictory claims about just how hard he tried to get the National Guard to show up. The desperation of the pro-Trump people was palpable and should have been obvious to almost anybody. There's a lot of people that are out there saying that this was, was obvious for sure. These protesters were going to do everything that they could to stop the certification of this vote. I think you do have to be a little bit careful about how obvious you, you think it is. Easy to say that now. There certainly seems to have been quite a lot of information that could have helped this Capitol Police Force prepare in a in a more efficient way, in a way that actually met the threat. I'm surprised worse didn't happen. We are definitely lucky that things didn't get worse. Had protesters been able to enter the Senate chamber while lawmakers were still inside, it's quite possible that things would have been quite a bit worse. What is causing people to be just so, uh, the word that Chief Pittman used today was desperate. You know, we didn't really look too much at the motivations of the protesters themselves. We looked more at the preparation and the response of the Capitol Police. But I think watching it, it's really clear that a lot of the people who were there that day believed that there was something deeply wrong with the election and believed that Donald Trump was the rightful winner of the election and not to be president. And they, they were going to stop at, at nothing to try and achieve those aims. ProPublica reporter Joaquin Sapien is author of I Don't Trust the People Over Me, Riot Cops Open Up About Disastrous Response to Capital Insurrection. It's available on ProPublica.org. And there were more hearings of Biden nominees winding their way through the Senate confirmation process today. The nominee for United States Trade Representative Catherine Tai was questioned by Senator John Cornyn about the critical shortage of computer microchips, which are apparently only made on the island nation of Taiwan. Anything with an off and on switch relies on semiconductors and the high end semiconductors manufactured in Taiwan are the sole source of some of the most sophisticated technology in the world, including everything from the F-35 down to cell phones. What role does the U.S. trade representative play in bolstering our vulnerable supply chains? A lot of the assumptions that we have based our trade programs on has maximized efficiency without regard to the requirement for resilience. Trade policy itself needs to be rethought and reformed with resilience and strategy in mind. And that was Catherine Tai. She's the nominee for United States Trade Representative being questioned by John Cornyn. And Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders held a hearing on raising the minimum wage today before his Senate Budget Committee. He heard from Costco CEO Craig Jeliner, who used the opportunity to announce he's increasing his company's entry wage from 15 to $16 an hour. Two years ago, we moved our starting hourly wage to $15 everywhere in the U.S., Effective next week, the starting wage will go to $16. Although there's a lot of external focus on starting wages and minimums, it's important to us that Costco employees have an opportunity to make more than just $15 or $16 an hour. I'm not an economist, a regulator, or a legislator, and I don't pretend to know the methods or models that are right for any other large or small companies in any other industries. But I do know what is right for Costco We're certainly not perfect, 
but we try to take care of our employees because they play such a significant role in our success. And as Craig Jeliner, he added that Costco pays an average wage of $24 an hour, nearly $50,000 a year with a 40-hour week with medical and other benefits available as well. And in an intense exchange, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul aggressively questioned Dr. Rachel Levine, who is transgender and in line to be Assistant Secretary of Health. Paul maintained that transgender surgery was akin to genital mutilation. Levine refused to take the bait from the conservative senator. I'm alarmed that you won't say with certainty that minors should not have the ability to make the decision to take hormones that will affect them for the rest of their life. Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field, uh, and if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field. Let it go into the record that the witness refused to answer the question. I find it ironic that the left that went nuts over hydroxychloroquine being used possibly for COVID are not alarmed that these hormones are being used off-label. There's no long-term studies. Senator Levine, thank you for uh, answering the question. I will turn to Senator Baldwin. And that's Dr. Rachel Levine, who is transgender and in line to be Assistant Secretary of Health. She was questioned by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. Chloroquine was a drug that was proposed by uh, President Trump as a potential cure for COVID-19. Studies that were done found that the drug had a significant chance of causing a fatal reaction in people who took it, some people who took it. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In a much-anticipated hearing at the Joint Legislative Budget Hearing on Health Care, State Health Commissioner Howard Zucker on Thursday afternoon defended the administration's policies on nursing homes, despite the high number of deaths of residents this year due to COVID-19. Zucker was pressed on whether a controversial March 25th directive from his office ordering nursing homes to readmit patients who were treated at hospitals for COVID-19 back into those facilities led to more infections from the virus. Zucker said, this is what's happening. People are not listening to the science. The fact of the matter is, first of all, it was in the facilities. It came from the community. It was already there. Zucker and Governor Andrew Cuomo have maintained that the spread of the disease inside the state's nursing homes and long-term facilities was caused by staff, not the March 25th directive, which they rescinded on May 10th. There were more than 15,000 presumed and confirmed COVID-19 deaths in those facilities. And Mayor Bill de Blasio, in conflict with the governor, is calling for an independent investigation after a former aide to Governor Cuomo accused him of sexual assault. De Blasio told reporters Wednesday these allegations are really disturbing. He continued, we as New Yorkers have to take these allegations seriously. This kind of behavior, if it's true, is just unacceptable. We've got to get to the truth about this. De Blasio's comments came a day after Lindsay Boylan, a former aide to Cuomo, detailed what she described as sexual harassment and unwanted attention from Cuomo during her time working in the administration. And Mayor de Blasio took today to sign three bills. Two of the bills would begin the process of closing the Rikers Island prison by the end of the decade. The bill will transfer portions of Rikers Island now uh, to Department of uh, Citywide Administrative Services beginning in July. And then all of Rikers Island would be transferred by 2027 as we're ready to close down all the correction activity there. Establishes the Rikers Island Advisory Committee, which includes members in the committee who were 
at some point in custody on Rikers Island. Uh, members of the committee will also be immediate family of those who were incarcerated. On top of that, environmental justice advocates, sustainability experts, this committee is going to do a lot to determine resilient, uh, sustainable use for Rikers Island going forward. And then intro 1593A would require the mayor's office of sustainability to study the feasibility of constructing renewable energy sources on Rikers Island. This is really exciting because our biggest challenge going forward is going to be fighting climate change, protecting this city, protecting our people, protecting the earth. Rikers Island could be an important part of that as a place we could potentially create a lot of renewable energy for this city. So this is a very important bill. Mayor de Blasio. And it's just two paragraphs buried toward the end of the nearly 4,000 pages making up Governor Cuomo's proposed state budget for 2022. Yet critics say this obscure budget measure could undermine one of the most ambitious local climate laws in the world. New York City's Local Law 97, which requires the city's big buildings to slash their greenhouse gas emissions 40 percent over the next decade and 80 percent by 2050. Part R of the Transportation, Economic Development and Environmental Conservation Bill, one of a dozen pieces of legislation making up Cuomo's proposed executive budget for 2022, would allow building owners to meet their emissions targets under Local Law 97 by buying credits for renewable energy produced elsewhere in the state. Activists and electeds joined in a Zoom meeting today to counter the governor's proposal. Congressperson Nidia Velasquez. Anything that this pandemic has laid bear for the world to see and, and for uh, policymakers uh, to realize is how systemic racism and structural inequ- inequities has been responsible for the high rate of uh, people of color uh, being impacted by COVID-19 and people of color dying from COVID-19. So as states uh, begin to reopen across the nation, all levels of government must make a transformational investment in an economic recovery that focuses on a sustainable future for our planet. With state and local budgets strained from pandemic response and lost tax revenue, I understand they will need further help. Tomorrow, I will vote to provide $350 billion to localities to address this shortfall. I will continue to stand up for green and resilient strategies that support an equitable recovery for all. This is just the beginning. And that's Nidia Velasquez, Congressperson Nidia Velasquez, a longtime supporter of Local Law 97, and City Council member Costa Castanitas. And we negotiated this bill over two years, and we worked with all stakeholders. We had working groups. We make sure we brought everyone to the table to make sure that we crafted a law that was based on science and based on the needs of the emissions reductions in New York City. Now, why did we start with these buildings? Well, you know, 50,000 buildings. You know, there are only about, you know, 50,000 buildings in New York City that are over 25,000 square feet. But they accounted for 30% of New York City's emissions. So when these building owners ask, well, why did you start with us? It's like, well, these are where the emissions were. And for us to go through this process, 
and to make these buildings more efficient, right, where, where the upgrades are going to happen, the investments that are going to be made are going to make these buildings more efficient, more desirable to live in, easier to insure. They're going to be a long-term investment. The integrity of New York City's legislative process is at stake here. We went through this legislative process in good faith. And because one entity has decided that they feel wronged and that they didn't get to write the bill, they are now going to Albany to ask for a way to circumvent it. And if they were to circumvent it, there could potentially be no retrofits till for another nine years if this part R goes through. And the executive director of American of the American Institute of Architects of New York is Ben Prodsky. Local Law 97 could create a $20 billion market and 140,000 jobs by the end of this decade. The current budget proposal would sacrifice 140,000 jobs just to save money for a handful of landlords. Companies and workers may move to more business-friendly and green states. Therefore, we hope that our elected officials will do everything they can to ensure the design and construction industry stay here in New York and get to work on this law. Enforcing Local Law 97 is a key tool in achieving a more equitable New York City, as well as key to the future of our entire state's economy. The uh, policy director for We Act for the Envi- for Environmental Justice is Sonal Jessel. She says the budget proposal is a setback to environmental justice. This will completely derail our ability to address climate change in the city because buildings account for most of the greenhouse gas emissions than all the cars, trucks, buses combined. I mean, how can we leave buildings out of the equation? We won't achieve enough reductions that we need to to you know, mitigate our climate crisis. Not only is this budget item a gift to already very powerful real estate industry and completely curbs the plan to address the climate crisis, but it robs us of the thousands of jobs we would be created in doing so. Um, it leads to local air pollution staying the same or even increasing in environmental justice communities, such as the communities that we act represents. Energy efficiency in buildings is mandatory for improving local air quality, not only combating climate change on the whole. It's a real insult to our low-income communities and communities of color who have already shouldered the brunt of this pandemic, shouldered the brunt of climate change. And that's Sonal Jessel of We Act for Environmental Justice. And Assembly Member Ron Kim, whose confrontation with the governor started the latest round of scandals and recriminations, reiterated his distaste for Cuomo as he opposed the budget line. And the very fact that we're even here, it's kind of disgusts me, right? We should be, as Costa said, going further, right, toward a real green, radical Green New Deal, not a fake Green New Deal that's based on market-driven solutions. I'm talking about a radical, real Green New Deal based around investing in public housing, public infrastructure, public transportation that leaves no to no, no to little carbon uh, footprints in the future of the city. Other cities are already doing it. They are realigning their incentives, tax credits, toward lesser carbon footprints. And we're not, we're just like stuck going back and forth. Oh, should we get rid of Local 97 or not? That is a stupid place to be. There's no other way to describe it. So we should be saying no, enough of this game with Como where he is always trying to put profits over people's lives. This is, again, an example of that. And that's Assemblymember Ron Kim.
And why is it that progressive laws get so much political support at the beginning, only to fall by the wayside in the final budget? Maritza Silva-Farrell is executive director of the Labor Support Group, Align. When there is already an advisory council that could actually work with the stakeholders, many members of the real estate are participants of this um, stakeholders advisory council to implement these kind of laws. But they usually look to circumvent and uh, with excuse that they have no resources to do so. So it all comes down to the way in which the industries have been functioning. And at the end of the day, government officials who continue to believe that the status quo is the way to go will continue to have the same talking point and will continue to respond to the needs of the industry rather than the needs of our communities uh, at the expense of our planet. And Maritza Silva-Farrell is executive director of Align. And finally, former President Donald Trump's tax returns are now in the hands of Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance. Vance's office confirms the documents were obtained on Monday after the Supreme Court declined to step in to halt the turnover of Trump's tax records to the Manhattan prosecutor. Trump's tax records are not supposed to become public as part of prosecutors' criminal investigation, but the high court's action was a blow to Trump because he has long fought on so many fronts to keep his tax records shielded from view. The documents reportedly contain millions of pages of financial statements and other paperwork from 2011 through 2019. Vance is investigating whether the former president and his company, the Trump Organization, engaged in insurance tax or any other types of fraud. And that's some of the news for Thursday, February 25th, 2021. The news produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for joining us.